Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey everybody, welcome to a bonus episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex. And this is going to be kind of the introduction to Lutheran theology. And I want to kind of give a, a little bit of overview of what I want to accomplish with this series and hopes that we can uh, articulate what it is I'm trying to do. I think there is mass confusion in the social media realms of what Lutheran theology really is. And a lot of it, I think, are just preconceived notions that anything Lutheran then is equated to the ELCA, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Churches of America. This does not have anything to do with Lutheran theology. They are off in the weeds, and they have, in my opinion, they have surrendered uh, the gospel uh, for a social justice platform, and they do so on many fronts. So without really going into a bashing of them, uh, I want to articulate that within the Lutheran faith, as within many of the other denominations out there, there are senates, and each senate is focused kind of differently. So we have the Missouri Senate, the LCMS, you might see labeled on a church building, uh, they're Missouri Senate, uh, they're um, going to be more defined in their theology. Uh, they're going to be more adherence to the Book of Concord, and they're going to practice closed communion. And we'll talk about that when we get to the communion section. But uh, in, a, in a roundabout sense, they don't allow anybody who's not a Missouri Senate Lutheran to partake in communion. Me being a Lutheran pastor, I couldn't partake in many of the churches. There's some that do practice open, but uh, most of them don't. There's the Wisconsin Senate. Uh, I'm not ultimately too familiar. I know there's some. There's a lot of similarities there. Obviously, the ELCA. There's other senates around the world. I am a part of the LCMC, which is Lutheran Churches on Mission for Christ. We are a smaller senate. There's about a thousand churches in our collection total. Uh, power goes to the churches to govern themselves. There's no hierarchy, bishops or anybody that oversees. There's people that are appointed positions and they are advisors and helpers, but they don't actually have influence in the church, which is amazing because that's 
really what Luther's biggest, one of Luther's biggest drives in, in the reformation of the church is giving power to the churches, taking it away from the pulp, the Pope. So that's just a very basic overview. There's uh, again, there, we could probably do 10 episodes on, on the different senates. I'm not going to do in any of that. What I want to do is provide an introduction today on essentially confessing of the faith. What does it mean to confess as a Lutheran? And we're going to talk about uh, the book of Concord. We're going to go over some kind of high level stuff. So I got this really interesting book that I used when I was in uh, my seminary class on the Lutheran confessions. Uh, And it literally is titled the Lutheran confessions, history and theology of the book of Concord. So we're going to look at a little bit of the history aspect uh, using this book. And then I've got this nifty little commentary book on the Augsburg Confession, uh, as well as the Book of Concord. We're not going to go through all 650 pages of the Book of Concord in this series, but we are going to highly touch uh, a lot of things. So we'll cover a bulk of the articles in a few episodes, and then we're going to look at Luther's small catechism and large catechism uh, kind of in a short episode. But the things that I feel we're going to really take more out of in this this is a small call to cat articles in the treatises, um, and we're going to look at even the apology, the formula, uh, I think, are going to be uh, a big as well. So there's a lot of things that we will look into, um, and we'll probably parallel them as we kind of go through the series. Now, that's just to get into the meat and potatoes of Lutheran theology, and I'm also going to use a few other books and writers as we kind of get to that. But this is going to essentially just be on the confessions of the Lutheran Church. And then we'll get into some of the theology behind that. So I don't know how many episodes it's going to take. And I don't know if we could do multiple uh, episodes a month. But we will certainly do what we can to uh, continue keeping this coming to you fresh every single week. All right. So here we go. Uh, I'm going to read some excerpts. And we're going to discuss as I kind of read through it. So um, I've got... uh, some content in front of me, and uh, I want to hopefully get this to explain some of the theology that seems to be escaping the world of the Lutheran circle. So, here we go. Historians of religion suggest that all systems for describing that the, all systems for describing ultimate reality and directing human beings to live successfully within that reality share basic elements. Nieman Smart has listed six, doctrine or teaching, narrative, ritual, ethics, community, and the personal faith or sense of awe and reverence that binds the first five together. While every ideological system has some form of each, each religion combines them in different ways. Choosing to orient the entire procedure for describing reality from specific starting points, All Christians practice their faith embracing all six elements, but different Christian traditions give different elements, differing values, and places in their entire practice of faith. The central point for the orientation of life and defining the nature and purpose of the church, the form that exercises organizing authority over the other elements, differs from group to group. Liturgical ritual determines the shape of piety for the Eastern Orthodox believers, and for the Uh, Anglicans, the Book of Common Prayer, has formed the life of the church most decisively. Both the uh, Orthodox and the Anglican faithful also count on their bishops to hold church together. 
Roman Catholics are also united by common liturgy and doctrine, to be sure, but the politely based on the Bishop of Rome's Vatican, governing the church militant in Christ's stead, is the factor upon which being truly Christ's church stands or falls. Among English Protestants, forms of community also played a significant role as churches claimed to be Presbyterian or Congregational in contrast to the Anglican establishment's Episcopal form. Baptists highlight their identity through one specific doctrine and related practices. Reformed and Lutheran believers have defined themselves by broader focus on Christian teaching and interpretation of the biblical narrative. In the century following 1530, they composed documents that labeled Confessions of the Faith to do so. In 1530, Emperor Charles V demanded an explanation of the religious policies from the governments of German principalities and towns that were introducing forms, reforms proposed by Martin Luther and, the Wittenberg, and his Wittenberg colleagues. Charles, Charles wanted to know why dissent from the Roman obedience was not illegal. Philip Melanchthon led the theologians on a diplomatic team put together by these evangelical rulers. Because of the Wittenberg the- theologians, regarded God as a God of conversation and community, Melanchthon insisted that the Holy Scripture alone, as God's word in authoritative form, served as the ultimate authority for the life of the church, the ultimate definer of its teachings, which was central for that life. But we also recognize that the church has always had secondary authorities to guide and mandate the delivery of the biblical message to the people of God, By the end of the second century, theologians spoke of the rule of faith that summarized biblical teaching. The writings of ancient fathers and decisions of councils and bishops had served as authorities through the Middle Ages. After 1530, Lutherans gradually came to accept the Augsburg Confession as an interpretation of the ancient creeds, along with several other documents regarded as reputitious of the Augsburg Confession finally gathered into the Book of Concord in 1580 as their secondary authorities. From the mid-17th century on, Lutherans have called these confessional documents Norma Normata. This is a Normand norm, a standard set by something else, in this case by Scripture. At At Augsburg, Melanchthon and his colleagues established the nature of the Lutheran Church as a church that defines itself by its ability to convey God's word to the world in a confessional in a confession of faith. This took place as Melanchthon explained it to the emperor and the assembled representatives of the German Empire that Luther's reform meant that the church meant for the church. He entitled this explanation a confession. So if this question was presented to you, what does it mean to be a Lutheran? Most people would probably answer with some mention of Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer whose message spread across Germany and beyond with lightning speed in 1517 to 1518 in in subsequent years. Somewhat by accident, he encountered the the invention of the Jonas Gutenberg, more than half a century old at the point but it's with its potential still unrealized. The ability to print the 
movable print, the movable type, contributed mightily to the spread of Wittenberg call for reform. Indeed, this median shaped, in part, the way in which Luther and his colleagues formulated and conveyed their message, and the way in which they put their thinking to work. As important as Luther was, in the remain and remains for Lutheran identity, however, Lutheran churches have formally defined themselves through documents they label confessions of faith. Such of these churches, the Shovek Republic, Poland, and Slovakia, for example, they call themselves the Evangelical Church of the Augsburg Confession. The key statement that has defined Lutheran belief, teaching, and confessing for almost 500 years. Melanchthon went on to the imperial diet that the Emperor Charles V had summoned to Augsburg in the spring of 1530 in order to serve his princes and other governments that were introducing reform to the Wittenberg Manor. Melanchthon expected that the explanation would be delivered orally by Christian Bayer, the vice-chancellor of the governor government of Electoral Saxony, the leader of the evangelical princes and municipalities, but Melanchthon did not entail, entitle the speech he was composing for Bayer as an explanation. In fact, he originally proposed to describe it as an apology, that is, a defense. So this vice-chancellor Bayer read the text of the confession that Melanchthon had prepared, for German, uh, prepared in German to the assembled princes and municipal representatives along with the emperor who then received it in both Latin and German. And here's what Luther has to say on Melanchthon's words. He says, The effectiveness and power of God's word is such that more than it's persecuted, the more it flourishes and it grows. Just think, the Diet of Augsburg were truly the last trumpet before the last day was sounded how the whole world was raging against the word. We pray that Christ himself in heaven would be safe from the papists, but our teaching and our faith went out into the light through confession, so that in a very brief time, by imperial mandate, it was sent to all the kings and princes. There were many minds of leading men in the, these courts whom this teaching took captive, like a spark and then a roaring fire. Our confession and defense was brought before the world in a wondrous fashion while their, while their confrontation wasted away in the darkness. He was probably referring to the fact that the emperor refused permission to publish the confrontation to the Augsburg Confession or to share a manuscript copy with the evangelicals, whereas the Augsburg Confession appeared the next year in print. Without specific mention of the confession itself, Luther remained in Wittenberg, in the Wittenberg congregation in 1531, that God had triumphed through the Lutheran's weaknesses at, at Augsburg. Indeed, Luther's friend George Palatin called Augsburg Confession the most significant event that has ever taken place on earth, an opinionated voice by several of Luther and Melanchthon's students. After Augsburg, in 1530, Anglicans and Reformed, and Reformed believers joined Lutherans in defining the church by confessional document. Within days of the presentation of Melanchthon's works, four cities in South Germany had presented their own quote-unquote confession. Within a few years, others working on the reform of the church 
have reduced confessions, for example, that the city of Basel in 1534 and that group of Swiss churches, the first Helvinic Confession in 1536, composed to present the teaching of these churches at the Palpacy Call Council. By the 20th century, a modern representative of the Anabaptist movement changed the title of the Schleichen Articles, my apologies for butchering that, in 1528, one of the earliest statements of the Anabaptist belief into the Solanthium Confession. Again, probably butchering that, uh, that word there. The earliest reports of the Diet of Augsburg from Lutheran pens regarded the Augsburg Confession as, a, as an entire effort to presenting their understanding of faith, an activity that extended over several months, during which Melanchthon and others were working on the text explaining the Confession to Roman Catholic theologians and secular counselors in extended negotiations. Then they came to speak of this Confession as specifically the act of reading the document as the public confession of seven princes and two city councils before the assembled date, before the assembled diet. Finally, gradually in the 1540s, and certainly by the second half of the 16th century, the term Augsburg Confession began to refer primarily to the exclusive and exclusively to the document itself. The Wittenberg team could not have known how issuing a public confession to define the church would make such a uh, stamp on the life of their churches. Melanchthon and his colleagues at Augsburg intended simply to defend and explain and justify Lutheran teaching in the confession's first 21 articles and its plans for the church life in the last seven. Within the following decade, the Augsburg Confession became recognized as a secondary authority, a binding summary, basis, rule, and guiding principle, and an explanation of, quote-unquote, how all teaching is to be judged in accord with God's word, with how the errors that have arisen are to be explained and decided in the Christian faith, to use the description of the authors in the Formula of Concord for a function of that document in 1577. The Augsburg Confession is a brief document. The first of these commentaries came from the author's own pen in the Melanchthon's Apology, the second in 1550 with the Magdeburg Confession, and then with several other repetitions on various parts of the empire and beyond in subsequent decades, and finally, once again, officially with the Lutheran churches in 1577, the formula of Concord. And so... Again, here we come to this knowledge. Again, this is just a very basic and brief overview, you know, of the building out of the confession itself. We start in, uh, you know, with Luther's 95 thesis being nailed to the door at Wittenberg in 1517. And that really sparks the whole Reformation, depending on whatever side of the, the, the marker you want to find yourself on. It was, there were other defining moments, you know, that were the kindling to the fire, but this was essentially one of the biggest sparks, and it was paired with the uh, printing press that came about, and that really set the fire ablaze. And so, when we read through the Augsburg Confession together on this show, we will look at 
some of this. Now, we also should make note, Luther didn't write the Augsburg Confession. That's probably, I think, sometimes a misconception in the Lutheran circles or outside of the Lutheran circles that Luther actually wrote this. No, he was staying uh, in a castle under guard because if he was captured uh, by the Roman Catholic uh, army, he would just be executed because he was excommunicated. Uh, and that goes back to Diet of Worms where he was excommunicated. And so he essentially hid under, under guard for the time that the Augsburg was written. He had influence on it, and Melanchthon, his essentially second, in, you know, in command, if you would, or his, you know, the protege, the, his, a pot, his little disciple that Luther was teaching and raising up. Melanchthon took the charge with many other uh, local Lutheran pastors in this time period and wrote these articles. And so there's a collection of men that sat down and wrote through these uh, articles. So we're going to get into those uh, here on this show a little bit later on. But I want to really cover just a few things um, before we do so. When we, and this I think is a good preference before we dig into them because I think it helps us to understand the foundation used and uh, and really getting to the nook and cranny of what Lutheran faith is based on. And if you go to a non-denominational church, you'll probably rarely ever see any sort of conf- uh, creed being used. And if you go to a denominational church, chances are better to see a creed. But Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You won't always see creeds used. Within Lutheran churches, those that are true into the liturgical sense of the divine service, you will find a creed every Sunday. And so we alternate in my church between the Nicene Creed, which we recite on communion Sundays, and the Apostles' Creed, which we recite every other Sunday. And so the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed are three primary creeds that the Lutherans reflect upon. Historically, the Apostles and Athanasians Creed belonged properly to the church's tradition in the West. Of the three, the Nicene Creed is the truly ecumenical creed acknowledged by the Eastern and Western church alike. From the onset of Article 1, the Augsburg grounds its confession in Catholicity to its audience and the faith of Nicaea. Now, again, what we need to understand is that this isn't the Roman Catholic basis it's the church universal that we hold to so this for example when considering the nicene creed uh attention must be given to the ecumenical creed or ecumenical councils in which the christiology of nicaea was expounded and expanded these councils provide something of the church's interpretation for the nicene creed it shows its theological trajectory goodness gracious so when we get to this uh, Nicene Creed. We're going to kind of just briefly talk about it today. Uh, we're not going to dig into the history of it. Nick on Christ as a Cure is going to do all of that. He's got books upon books upon books of research that he's digging into. And uh, so stay tuned for his, um, his deep dive into that. Uh, so let's look at the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is developed as a baptismal creed for teaching the faith to the catacombs and for liturgical use and baptismal rite. The Nicene Creed represents a counselor creed, a conciliar creed, though based on a baptismal creed and subsequently used as one. It was formulated in order to define the faith over and against the Arian heresy. Again, Nick is going to deep dive in all that. I'm just doing some high level to kind of add context to the show and hopes to build kind of a very basis foundation for us to continue onward. So the Apostles' Creed. To this day, the Apostles' Creed remains the baptismal and categorical creed used in most Lutheran congregations, in large part due to the continued use and importance of Luther's small catechism. The Apostles' Creed is one and the same time, is at one and the same time the church's oldest creed and newest what we today refer to as the Apostles' Creed is formulated over a period of five centuries between the 3rd and 8th centuries. We can point to a definitive and relatively fixed text only from the 9th century to the present. Its history can be divided roughly into two periods. The first involves the formulation of early, early forms of the Apostles' Creed that are represented by the Baptismal Creed of the Roman Church, referred to as the Old Roman Creed, and its variants that appear from the 3rd to 8th century. The second period of its history extends from the 9th century forward, a time when scholars can speak 
of a definitive and fixed text of the screed. Scholars usually refer to this as the textus recipitus, the received text, that came to be used widely within the Western church. The old Roman creed, the Apostles' Creed, can be traced, uh, can trace its genesis back to the era of the New Testament when we see the impulse of Christians confess their faith. Simple and concise confessions of Jesus can be found in the pages of the New Testament. They often took the form of what scholars call Christological acclamations. The most of the, the most of these common of these are and are easily recognizable. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is the Son of God. Some of them, some think that they took the form of personal confession of the faith by which one announced his or her allegiance to Christ. The, as acclamations, they also offered him praise and adoration. Sometime between 150 and 250 in Rome, Christological sequences were inserted into the Trinitarian formula used for Christian baptisms, thus giving rise to the Apostles' Creed in the form of the Old Roman Creed, that is. Uh, Louis Westra suggests that such a fashion of these two elements marks the birth of the Apostles' Creed, even though the precise wording in the formula cannot be determined. Because the Christological sequence was inserted into a Trinitarian baptismal formula, Westra argues that the Apostles' Creed as we meet in Rome and the rest of the Western church bears the character of a liturgical text. The integral form of the creed was used within the baptismal rite itself. There, the person being baptized was asked questions beginning with, do you believe in God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth to each question? The baptized respond. Yes, I believe at which point he or she submerged underwater. In the early 12th century, this set of baptismal questions resembled the old Roman creed and found in the collecta and collecto uh, vernanus. Again, I'm not very good at Latin, so bear with me. Came to associate it with the Roman presbyter, presbyter uh, Hippolytus and so-called apostolic tradition, which is uh, which was thought to be his. So the wording for the baptismal question follows here. I'll give these wordings of the old Roman creed. Do you believe in God, the father almighty? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the son of God who was born by the Holy spirit of the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died and was buried and rose again on the third day, living from the dead and ascended into heavens and sits at the right hand of the father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And as it goes on, it defines itself a little bit more uh, as the Roman, the old Roman creed will follow in suit here, a little bit more defined. I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried on the third day, rose again from the dead, ascended into the heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission, the remission of sins and the resurrection of the flesh. So that's the creed itself. That's not the baptismal questions which are taken out of the creed. So the issue in which came first depends upon uh, in part 
whether or not the fusion of the Trinitarian and Christological formula that gave the Apostles' Creed took place uh, before or after they became established practice. And again, there's a lot of history on the old Roman Creed, and I would love to uh, dig into all of that with you, but that's not what the premise of the show is, and for time's sake, I'm going to move on. Uh, the Textus Recepitus is the Apostles' Creed, of the Apostles' Creed. The final form of the Apostles' Creed shifts attention from Rome to the Western Europe. And this is more or less now uh, the creed that we are ultimately familiar with, uh, that we recite on a regular basis. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and recite that now in some capacity for you. So it's broken into three uh, articles. And here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's the Apostles' Creed. There are variations. Some people will uh, brief, uh, substitute hell and put in dead. And then there's the resurrection of the flesh is another one instead of resurrection of the body. Christian church is often used as Holy Catholic Church. Uh, or, yeah, Holy Catholic Church. And so there's there's little variances and depending on the versions that you're using. There's plenty of versions out there, but this is... Uh, according to the Book of Concord, so this is the most Lutheran in its essence, at, at least. So the Nicene Creed, uh, just going to kind of high level that again really quick for you here. Um, this is most who recite it every Sunday may not realize how important it is or how revolutionary it was for a confession of Jesus Christ within the Christian church. The Nicene Creed came to the terms with what to many appeared to be two conflicting principles, namely the monotheistic principle, there is only one God, and the Christological principle, the Son is fully God in some way that the Father is fully God, in the same way that the Father is fully God. When I talk to people about the Nicene Creed or even the Apostles' Creed, I have really simply pointed to this as being each of them is a proclamation of our faith. When we recite the Nicene Creed or we recite the Apostles Creed we are making a proclamation of faith and so that is how we uh, decipher or determine what a Christian believes so I'm going to go ahead and recite the Nicene Creed here and again Nick is going to do probably a much deeper dive into this than I uh, obviously am on this show so he's going to do the history and all the things that are going on because there's a lot that happened with this council and uh but i'm just using this as a foundational building block for the lutheran confessions so i believe in one god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible and in one lord jesus christ the only begotten son of god begotten of the father before all ages god of god light of light very god of very god begotten not made being of one substance with the father through whom all things were made who for us men in our salvation came down from heaven was incarnate by the holy spirit of the of the virgin mary uh, was incarnate by the holy spirit of the virgin mary was made man who 
For us, too, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, and was buried. On the third day, he rose according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And of the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and of the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Christian apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life to, of the age to come. Amen. So that is the Nicene Creed. Now, the, the Athanasian Creed, I'm, I'm not going to read this whole thing. There's 40 lines in it. I would advise you to go out. It's a very fascinating uh, creed because it's really aimed at countering some prevalent heresies that were going on in this time period. So... Uh, take some time, go read the Athanasian Creed. You can just Google it and find it. Um, and uh, that is where I would implore you to go. So that is really the summary of the introduction. I think uh, I want to keep this, again, I want to give it a deep dive, but I want to keep it uh, you know, fairly simple um, in terms of what they entail. Now, I do, you know what, I'm, I'm going to just go over as I'm looking kind of ahead in this book here, I'm going to go over Luther's small and large catechism in a, in a framework here real quick, because I want to ensure that we know uh, some of these and we'll get more deep into them as we go along. Uh, Luther's small catechism is what I teach to the children in confirmation. And in this, we cover the 10 commandments, the creed, which is the apostles creed and the Lord's prayer. Those three are major elements that I consider to be memorized by the confirmands. Uh, then we go into the sacrament of the holy baptism, confession and absolution, the sacrament of the altar. Uh, and then we've got kind of some questions, morning, evening prayers, grace at the table, table of duties, things like that. That's the small catechism. It's not real big. It's maybe about 200 and some pages long. The large catechism is a little bit bigger because Luther gives much deeper explanations here. And what we get is the uh, first part is the Ten Commandments, second part is the Creed, and then we have the Lord's Prayers, third part, fourth part is baptism, fifth part is sacrament of the altar. But in each of these, we have detailed explanations, whereas in the, in the small catechism, we don't quite get as detailed. Uh, the small catechism, again, is designed to teach children. The large catechism was des designed to teach adults. So there's a lot happening in the large catechism. And uh, we'll probably get into some of the history as, as we go through the Augsburg Confession, and we'll see how that kind of correlates between what Luther wrote and what Melanchthon is presenting. So, again, there's a lot of history, and, uh, you know, maybe it would help if I wrap the show out with just kind of a quick timeline of, of how that goes. And so here you go. So starting with 1517, we have Luther nails the 95 Thesis to the Castle Church Door in Wittenberg on October 31st. And then we have uh, the Diet of Worms going on here in 1521. And then we've got Luther returning to Wartburg in March of 1522. And we've got uh, moving along here into 1525. Luther marries his wife. Luther works in the new church order at Saxony. The first Lutheran ordination takes place in Wittenberg, all happening in 1525. Uh, then the Diet of Spire grants German princes the right to establish religion in their territory. 
Church visitation begins to assess needs of congregations. This is all in 1526. Uh, then plague strikes Wittenberg and uh, the Luthers take home into a hosp- take their home into a hospital. Luther writes a mighty fortress in 1527. And again, these are kind of just seg pieces of uh, you know all of the things leading up to the uh, Augsburg Confession and, and all that. So these are just little little bits uh, here. So we've got Luther writes his confession concerning Christ's Supper. It's 1528. Uh, and then we move down to 1530. And this is where we start to get to all of this. The Augsburg Confession presented to Charles at the Diet of Augsburg in June, uh, in June of 1530. Uh, the Augsburg Confession and Apologies published April through May in 1531. And then we've got, uh, so we jump ahead here a little bit into the 1540s. We start to see Melanchthon starting to publish more works. Uh, he also publishes his revised Augsburg Confession in 1540, along with the Treatise on Power and Primacy of the Pope. If we go down to 1545, uh, this is the uh, this is where Luther starts to essentially wean away from the life here. 1546, he preaches his last sermon on February 14th, and then passes away February 18th. So Luther literally preaches up until almost the day he dies. And then we go into 1550 and we see well uh, Calvin coming onto the scene and starting to write um, his works where he and Zwingli uh, write views on the Lord's Supper and how essentially we'll get into this as we get to that point, but uh, they differ from uh, what Luther and Melanchthon held to. So the Peace of Augsburg allows Lutherans to equal rights to the Holy Empire. This is happening in 1555. There's, again, some wars that break out uh, through this time period. Um, and that's what uh, really essentially becomes a, you know, a, a firestorm for a lot of these Lutheran princes and leaders in Germany and throughout, uh, throughout Europe. 1559, John Knox brings Calvinism to Scotland. 1560, Philip Melanchthon dies. And and then it just keeps being revised a few times with the Augsburg Confession over the over the years. Uh, the Book of Concord is published in 1580. And then again, revisions and edits are added to it as time goes on. And uh, so I, I really want to, you know, reiterate the fact that, you know, this isn't a Lutheran's know it better than Calvin's or... Uh, Calvinists or Reformed know better than Lutherans. This is just a simple proclamation of what the Lutheran faith is. And essentially what I'm going to entail is this is what it means to confess as a Lutheran as we read through the Augsburg Confession and hold true to what Scripture says. And so we've got a lot yet to cover. Again, this is just a very basic introductory episode, and I hope that we can... uh, dig into this stuff deeper and uh, I pray that you are enjoying this and again any and all um, any and all suggestions please DM me because I would love to help answer questions and even articulate some of that stuff on the show and I'll probably even do a um, uh, a, a, a small Q&A maybe at, at a couple different points through this. So if you have questions, feel free to ask me and I'll address them on the show.
So that's going to take care of tonight's show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have questions, obviously DM me. This is not a deep dive history lesson into the Augsburg Confession, but it's just starting to film or build this, you know, the foundations to what were what was going on and some of the events that led up to and things like that. So again, not a super deep dive, but I we will be digging into it deeper as we move along. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Until next time, uh, obviously new Friday episodes dropping and I'm hoping to get these to go every Tuesday. I just can't guarantee that I'll have enough time and research to do week to week. So we'll keep them up as, as fast as we can. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy the series. So until then, God bless. Have a great week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 